1: Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.
2: Episode 297 of The Bowery Boys, Dr. Huzzick's Enchanting Garden. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hello, and welcome to The Bowery Boys, This is Tom Myers. Greg Young is taking a well-deserved vacation this week, so we will be missing him, of course. But fear not, soon we'll be joined in the studio by a fantastic guest. Now, this morning, I took a trip on the subway to one of the city's most familiar spots. I got off the F train at 50th Street. I walked up the stairs, through those turnstiles, past that Dunkin' Donuts, and up into Rockefeller Center. Now, first you arrive on a shopping concourse, uh, but I took the stairs up to 30 Rockefeller Plaza's ground floor, walking past people in business attire, you know, hustling to the elevators, and past groups of foreign visitors, of course, who are taking in the impressive murals uh, by Jose Maria Sert. I pushed through those revolving doors out onto the plaza, and walked around the summer garden which uh, occupies the ice rink during the summer making my way back to the lovely channel gardens which are planted this summer with with native plants of all varieties and the place was incredibly packed with tourists. Everybody was angling for a photo with 30 Rock in the background but I kept trotting along toward Fifth Avenue but just before getting there I turned around, and after searching around a little bit, I located a small plaque that's attached to one of those giant granite planters. It reads, In memory of David Huzik, 1769-1835. to Botanist, physician, man of science, and citizen of the world. Well, that's intriguing. Why would Rockefeller Center have posted a plaque to an early 19th century botanist and physician in the middle of their famous garden? It's on a spot that's, that's packed with visitors, and yet at the same time, this little plaque is almost entirely overlooked. That is the story that we'll be examining today. And fortunately, we'll be joined by the leading expert in David Huszok's life, Victoria Johnson. Victoria is currently an associate professor of urban policy and planning at Hunter College in New York, where she teaches on the history of New York City. Victoria is also the author of the 2018 book, American Eden, David Hussick, Botany and Medicine in the Garden of the Early Republic. American Eden was a New York Times Notable Book of 2018, a finalist for the 2018 National Book Award in Nonfiction, and a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize in History. If anyone can help us appreciate David Huzik's fascinating life, it's Victoria. And she's joining us back down on 26th Street in the studio. Let's go meet up with her. Welcome, Victoria.
3: Thank you. I am so thrilled to be here. I'm a huge fan. Oh, stop it.
2: (laughs) Fortunately, podcast (laughs) listeners can't see that I'm blushing here. First of all, I have to tell you, I had such a good time reading your book.
3: Oh, I'm so glad to hear that.
2: And one of the reasons, really, is that it dives deeply into this period in between the American Revolution and the opening of the Erie Canal. And I feel like that's a time period that often gets jumped over. Why is that period so... Interesting.
3: Well, I think I'll start by saying why I think it sounds boring to people in some ways. Maybe they jump over it. New York was in the early Republic had been filled with the heroes of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. The next generation, what did they do? We often can't think of anything they did until the Erie Canal opened. Right.
2: And then there it's boom time.
3: Right. And then it's boom. But so much happened in those first two decades of the 19th century in New York City. And I stumbled across this man who had so much to do with what happened in New York, particularly in the arts and sciences. And I think of this era as the era when New York became New York, one of the greatest cities in the nation. And people sometimes... Don't really think about when New York became New York, but it was not New York in the early republic. It was just the lesser sister to Philadelphia.
2: And the opening of the Erie Canal and sort of like the, the boom in the economy here in New York that then led to so many other things that could not have happened without this cast of characters who we're going to spend some time with here.
3: Exactly. I mean, they were they were inventing new kinds of organizational forms, civic institutions that we take for granted today. And they had to do this pioneering work, which we don't really glamorize in the United States. Civic Civic institution builders are not the people we tend to celebrate. We celebrate or vilify politicians. We celebrate or vilify actors, entertainers. But these people who are building our cities mm-hmm. and our civic fabric, they're not very glamorous to us, generally. I think they're the most glamorous, and I think they deserve to be celebrated.
2: So let's just dive in then with David Huzzick, who was born in New York on August 31st, 1769, 250 years ago next week. That's right. I'm yeah. going to ask you about your big celebration plans later in the show. So David Huzek grows up. In the 1770s, I mean, he's growing up, he's a boy during the revolution in New York City and then sees the aftermath. What was the city even like for him as
3: a child? So he was the son of a merchant who was fairly prosperous, a man who had come from Scotland to fight in the French and Indian War in the middle of the 18th century, set up in New York City. Husset grew up fairly comfortable surrounded by blood, death, and disease like everyone else in New York City. Um, There were epidemics. There were soldiers being carried on stretchers down the streets, wounded past him or dead. And major civic buildings were turned into field hospitals, churches, and Columbia College. So he was surrounded by human tragedy and than human heroism. It was a really exciting and somewhat terrifying city to grow up in. And it was tiny, we have to remember. Yeah, I
2: was going to ask you, it's it's all south of like today's City Hall, basically.
3: Yeah, yeah. So lower Broadway and down, basically. So Trinity Church was sort of pretty far north, <laughs> which is kind <laughs> of amazing to think about. The rest of Manhattan was covered with uh, farms and For a while, forests, although a lot of the forests got burned down or uh, raised for firewood in the revolution. And how many people lived in New York
2: at at the time that he was a child in the 1780s or so?
3: Well, what we know is uh, that in 1790, there were around 30,000 people in New York City.
2: But as a child then, growing up in that city that you've just described and seeing all of that sickness from all the diseases, did that...
3: Push him then,
2: encourage him to get into studying medicine.
3: Yeah, I think that was a major inspiration for him. He enrolled at Columbia College uh, in 1786, and the newly named. Yes, Kings College, until after, shortly after the Revolution, um, and it was. We have to remember for those of you who know that Columbia University has now a major campus in northern Manhattan. Back then, it was on one block near Park Place, one building. And uh, of course, all young men and Hazek enrolled in 1786 and began to study medicine.
2: What was the study of medicine like in the 1780s? I mean, you go into some great sort of gory details about how doctors would treat these annual epidemics, the yellow fever epidemics that would seem to come every year. Yeah. Um, how were many of these things treated?
3: This is an era in American medicine when doctors still were rooted in the humoral theory of medicine, the idea that the body was governed by humors. And the Humors. humors. Um, Not
2: like funny jokes.
3: <laughs> no. Um, the four humors, which were thought to govern temperament, but also health. And this was a very ancient way of approaching the body, but it was still kind of hanging on in the early republic. And the reason it was hanging on was that doctors would not realize the role of microbes in illness until well into the 19th century, long after Huzik's death. So doctors in the early republic were reaching for treatments that would try to regulate these humors, the regulate the balance of the body with its environment. So a body that was sick was thought to be kind of out of whack. It's not that they were stupid. They just did not have the tools yet to understand that there's so much else causing these specific problems with the body. And that for many of the illnesses they were wrestling with, microbes were going to be the culprit, parasites and viruses and so on.
2: And I hesitate to even ask how the doctors were treating typical scenarios like, you know, yellow fever.
3: Okay, so so given this kind of understanding of the body, you can imagine that the treatments they were reaching for were a little bit clumsy as well. Um, bloodletting was one of the most popular approaches, and although it can look a little strange to us today and and even barbaric, the idea was that you were rebalancing the blood and the a person who was suffering from fever was often diagnosed as having excess or fizzy blood. And so bloodletting, which involved either a, a lancet, you know, cutting the skin and releasing blood into a bowl, or they, they got really um, advanced and developed something called a scarificator, which had 12 to 16 spring-loaded blades, which raked through the skin and released a huge gush of blood into a bowl. And this was a common treatment for yellow fever, along with Mercury pills.
2: Oh, so <laughs> as if this wasn't grisly enough. So, what effect would these mercury pills have on the body?
3: The mercury pills would force you to um, purge your bowels and uh, vomit violently pretty quickly. And again, the idea was you were removing the offending fluids and solids from your body, and that was thought to help purge the illness.
2: So, and purge here is kind of key. And, and of
3: course, we know now this is weakening the body right. just when it needs its strength, and it's definitely not curing what was ailing people.
2: But in the meantime, the medical students were also learning about anatomy.
3: Yes, and this was a very early stage in the use of corpses for medical studies. So this is still really controversial in the early Republic, partly because the bodies came from grave robbing, and it became particularly controversial when they ran out of um, bodies in the African burial ground and the pauper's graves and began to raid Trinity Church's graveyard where the wealthier people were buried and used those for dissection.
2: This is, I mean, so problematic, right? Like everything you just said is horrifying to us today. Yes. Um, this is. I take it it was necessary to raid these graveyards because they had no other access to bodies. They
3: didn't. I mean, they could get them from the almshouse. You know, if somebody died poor in the almshouse, they could get those bodies as well. Yes, they didn't have a sort of donation system for people to leave their bodies to medical research. Yet doctors knew and medical students knew that it was absolutely critical to study the human body itself rather than sort of trying to learn from antiquated pictures in books of what the human body might look like. And to get to see that world beneath the human skin was critical.
2: But even the the professors, say, at Columbia who were teaching anatomy, were they explaining where they got the bodies that they were dissecting?
3: Well... There was one professor in particular who was a pioneer in this regard, and he had studied in England where this practice was more accepted and more advanced, and he was so convinced that this was the only way for medical students to, in the United States to, to become better doctors. He had an anatomy lab where he was gathering these bodies, and um, when a group of citizens found out what was going on, they came and raided the lab and what they found absolutely horrified them. Um, As non-medical people, they found, you know, the stench of rotting corpses and arms lying around and they attacked the Columbia College Building and the anatomical lab at the New York Hospital, and Huzek heard that this was happening. He was a young student, and he heard that this attack was underway, and he raced to Columbia along with a lot of other New Yorkers, including John Jay, who got bashed in the head with a rock, um, going to defend the doctors, and. Huzik, too, got bashed in the head with a rock, and he thought he was going to be killed in the service of medicine when he was, you know, 18 years old. And a family friend saw him and saved his life. And, but Huzzick was among the medical professors and medical students who left town for a while until the tempers calmed about this practice. And,
2: wow. So that's one of the reasons then because of this sort of this riot, the doctor's riot that Hazek decides that maybe it's more advantageous to study anatomy and medicine abroad. Yeah. And and he heads to England in the early 1790s, and he's learning some new techniques. Uh, You go into detail about some of the new tricks he learned, um, (laughs) which we don't really have time for, but it's interesting. Is this also the time that he's introduced to botany? Yes,
3: yes. Just as an aside i I understand that by interesting, you mean too painful to describe yeah, on i don't the want air. to go into <laughs> i don't so. want to
2: get into it we've We've said enough people will be crossing their legs more and, f-
3: and fainting yes yes um Yeah, there are techniques I do not describe in my lectures anymore because of the number of people in the audience who are doubled over. Um, So um, he went to Edinburgh first. Edinburgh was the capital of Western medicine; it was where many of his professors had studied. And I, you know, I'm a professor, and I love to tell my students about how punishing his course schedule was. He was in class eleven hours a day straight, no break for lunch. Uh, He took Anatomy and chemistry, and he shadowed doctors in the clinics and all day long. And it was while he was there that he discovered botany and how important it was to the study of medicine.
2: And was that a link that had already been made in Edinburgh? Like the medical profession, the medical instruction was also including botany?
3: Yes, that's right. And he had, Hussek had probably been exposed to some botany training in the US, but what we didn't have at the time was a research botanical garden. And that's what he discovered in Edinburgh. He had studied botany from textbooks in his medical education. And I I think in a classic kind of New York sense that a lot of contemporary New Yorkers will recognize, he thought of plant-based medicines as something you went down to the apothecary shop on the corner to buy. It wasn't something that you went kind of made or cultivated yourself. Mm -hmm. And it was when he went to Great Britain that he realized that botanical gardens were all across Europe, and for medical professors and doctors and medical students, they were classrooms, encyclopedias, pharmacies, and laboratories all rolled into one. And he caught fire with a passion for this new kind of institution and the promise of it for gentler and more effective treatments for the ailments that were killing people all around him.
2: Did he see immediately that they actually had plants that could treat some of the things that he saw more sort of savage treatments for back in the States?
3: Absolutely. And again, he's still, and they're still rooted in the humoral approach to the body. So this wasn't about, you know, antibiotic properties of plants, but it was about some of the gentler, you know, what would break a fever, for example, a sudorific plant. So so sudorific means sweat-inducing, and there were a lot of plants that could help the body in the throes of fever, kind of break the fever by inducing sweating and raising the body temperature just enough without killing you. Um, And
2: these were plants that were not available back in the States?
3: Some of them were not available in the States, and some of them he just hadn't studied. And, you know, we've all had, I hope we've all had that experience where an incredible professor, you know, shines a light on a new idea or field And even if you'd had little glimmers of it before, you suddenly catch fire. And this is what happened to him.
2: But it's kind of amazing, too, you know, that he catches that fire and then thinks to himself, because he is a young guy in the 1790s in this new nation. I mean, I want to go home and do something about this. It's one thing to just like think it's interesting when you're learning it abroad. It's another to think, I need to export this and bring it back to the States and change, change the way that things are studied.
3: There are a couple of reasons for that. One is personal. Hussik was, um, as you probably gathered from the book, he was a very tenacious, brilliant young man and very, very driven when it came to science, art, anything that he thought would improve the young nation and bring it glory in the eyes of haughty Europe. After his time in Great Britain, he wrote to one of his mentors, um, Benjamin Rush, a famous physician in Philadelphia, and he said, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, the, the British have been incredibly welcoming. I'm so impressed by how kind they are, even though I'm an American and I should be you know, one of their enemies. They're so kind. But he said, they're waiting for the American experiment to fail. And Hmm. he was determined to be one of the young, the next generation, the post-revolutionary generation, one of the members of that generation who would help the American experiment succeed wildly. And so it was the personal drive and fascination and curiosity and sort of obsessive personality that Huzik had that attracted him to this new field. And it was these aspirations for his young nation.
2: Yeah. You just said American experiment. And I I feel like that is sometimes something that's forgotten, you know, that the world was looking at the U.S. and at this new nation and thinking, okay, how is this experiment going to play out? And this this generation here was set to like to prove to them that this could work. It was up to them to make it work.
3: Yes. So this is one of the things that um, I really love about studying this post-revolutionary generation and this kind of gray bland area in American history. I don't think it's bland at all. And plenty of historians have written about it, but it hasn't captured the public imagination as much as the founders. There's no question about that. And one reason I think it's so fascinating is imagine you are a teenage boy in the tiny city town, really, of New York City, 30,000 people, you're a teenager, and you are walking down the street, crossing paths with the heroes of the American Revolution. Yeah. And people who have framed this new government. Now, what do you dream of doing? That's going to be heroic, and it's going to live up to that legacy of the people who are actually just kind of passing you by on the sidewalk.
2: And maybe your parents know them too.
3: And your parents definitely know them. That is a
2: lot of pressure.
3: You you want to be heroic, but now her- heroism is about peace, and is about. Civic institution building and bringing greatness to your city and your nation and that 's what Huzek threw himself into and he never stopped till his death in eighteen thirty five uh, for Husick, they really were they really were inventing what a civic institution was and what a great city was and Husick went to Britain, looked around Edinburgh, and then he spent a year in London studying with you know, the likes of Sir Joseph Banks, president of the Royal Society, who became a mentor. And he came home and he saw, you know, cows strolling through the streets. I mean, to <laughs> allude to a recent episode of the Valley Boys. Oh. Um, yeah, he know, saw like,
2: New York in the 1790s. Yeah. So he comes back in 1794 with that experience and those new connections. I mean, he really has met a lot of incredible people in the world of science. He comes back and he he's married at this point. To a woman named Kitty, and they live at sixty Maiden Lane. And he becomes a popular professor at Columbia. Uh, His students love him.
3: They did. They wrote down his jokes, which is as a historian when you're looking at somebody, you know, 200 years ago to to get to to see somebody else's perception of you know, oh, Dr. Hesek said something really funny today. um, (laughs) That's kind of a gem. But Hesek was he was a very charismatic person and he was kind of, you know, sort of average height, but he had a big head. Like a lot of actors you meet in person, you'll see like, oh, they have a big head. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of what helps them project emotion. Uh And he had this, he had huge eyes and people constantly, every time somebody just left a description of Dr. Hosek, they included his giant, giant black eyes. And he had huge eyebrows and this kind of tall head of black, mussy hair. And all of this kind of went into his lectures he would he would kind of frown and smile and waggle his eyebrows around and gesticulate i find
2: it interesting that he's teaching at columbia but he's also in private practice so he is a physician in new york city and he joins uh the practice of samuel bard who was very well known and who had access to all of these super prominent new yorkers who
3: is samuel bard samuel bard was the most prominent physician in New York at the time, uh, when Husick was a young doctor. And Bard had treated President George Washington and many, many other prominent New Yorkers. Bard was also a Columbia professor, and when Husick became appointed Professor of Botany and Pharmacology at Columbia, right after he got back from his studies in Great Britain, Bard began to take notice of this really brilliant young man, and he soon asked him to kind of sub for him in his medical practice, and then asked him to be a partner. And then when Bard retired, Huzek took over that practice.
2: And then suddenly, Huzek, the doctor, has access to patients like Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, and and many other New Yorkers. Yeah. But those two in particular, it's so interesting. We'll get to this in a minute. But that he would develop this physician-patient relationship with these two prominent figures.
3: Yeah, that was the really fascinating thing about looking through Husick's eyes at these characters is you know, people mention Huzzick in passing, sometimes not even by name, but in accounts of Burr and Hamilton's relationship and, and their lives. But to look at Huzzick's letters and his practice and see these people. In their family settings, through his eyes, is it's a new portrait of what these people were like at home.
2: It makes them more human.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and the fact that they were corresponding, you know, with their doctor in yeah. this way. Yeah. But he stayed pretty much apolitical as a doctor.
3: Yeah, he he had to, in some ways, um, it wasn't it wouldn't have been good business practice to, to say you're only going to treat you know Federalists, um. <laughs> But he also lived by a principle of neutrality, scientifically. And I was very struck by a letter that he wrote about his best friend, DeWitt Clinton.
2: Can we pause for a second? I love the fact that his best friend is DeWitt Clinton. <laughs> you know, that's so incredible.
3: Yeah. I mean,
2: father of the Uri Canal.
3: Yeah. They met in at Columbia, and they were really different personalities, and— I love to think of them walking down the street together because you know Hasek was definitely shorter than Dwight Clinton because Dwight Clinton towered over everybody and and they were best friends from college until the day Clinton died and Hasek even warned Clinton you know shortly before he died he was like you're gonna have a heart attack if you keep living like this because um, Clinton yeah. had gotten incredibly overweight and and but for decades yeah and. That makes it all the more incredible that he wrote He wrote to the Secretary of the American Philosophical Society trying to get Dwight Clinton elected a member. And he wrote, I don't want to agree with Clinton's politics, but he's a man of science. And I thought, what? <laughs> Your best friend for decades. I mean, we don't do that that much anymore, right? And, yeah. Um, we and don't I, do a lot of things
2: <laughs> that you write about in this book anymore. Most
3: of that is a good thing. <laughs> wow. Um, but he... He really cared so much about science and about the future of the United States that he set he set aside politics whenever possible to pursue these projects of civic institution building. Yeah. And that allowed him to stay friends with people you would not think he would stay friends with.
2: And those friends, when they're powerful, like Hamilton, like DeWitt Clinton, would be able to help advance his big projects and hussocks big ideas and it's at this time in the late 1790s when he's got this passion back in new york for building a botanical garden he sees it as something that should be a part of his medical instruction
3: yeah he started teaching botany at columbia and he wrote to the columbia trustees and said i cannot teach out of books the students are so bored they're not learning anything Need... My
2: plant jokes are falling flat. <laughs> exactly.
3: Uh, he said I need to be able to take them to essentially a laboratory. And that laboratory for botany for the future of American medicine is a botanical garden where I can grow medicinal plants that we know of. I can grow poisonous plants so that I can teach my students not to prescribe those to mm-hmm. my to their patients. I can grow... Plants that we think of as simply ornamental and we can do experiments on them and find out if those are new sources of medicines. And one thing I should mention, it's incredibly important, is that most of the medicines known to doctors at this time came from the plant world. This was before the birth of, you know, synthetic pharmaceuticals. It was right. there were some medicines that came from animal substances and some from the mineral world. But but they
2: weren't using a microscope to mix chemicals. Yeah,
3: yeah. So so medicinal plants were the major source of medicines. And the entire continent was covered with thousands and thousands and thousands of plants that hadn't been studied by Western doctors, um, although there was vast indigenous knowledge about them. So you you needed this research institution to serve as a as a laboratory and a clearinghouse for this research on all Of these undiscovered plant medicines.
2: And the reaction from Columbia?
3: Columbia said, This is a great idea. We'll, we authorize some funds, and then the funds never materialized.
2: And this is a theme that goes, <laughs> that <laughs> sticks around throughout the entire book. It really becomes also like this, this long tale of funding issues, you know? And really, I think anybody who has like a burning project inside them who struggles with getting something funded just will cringe and cannot, will be able to identify with the, the struggles that Hussek faced here because he just, not just here at the beginning, but for many, many years seem to be following these, like, false leads from Columbia, from New York State, from other potential sources of revenue that that would never seem to materialize. Yeah.
3: And they it wasn't that they were false. It was that, like, any—I'm so glad you say that. That's why I put those in there, because some people might go, like, why do I want to hear about all the efforts, that, you know, to raise funds? Oh, God. <laughs> like, every, That's the drama. Every, every, everybody trying to do something new— whether it's the first time that thing has been done or, you know, you're trying to found a new nonprofit. These are the dramas and they're real and they keep people up at night and they kept Isaac up at night. And interestingly, the dramas were, you know, he was going to his colleagues. He was going to his friends. He was going to, finally, he was going to the city, to the state. He was going up to Albany over and over and over. He was writing the president. He was writing the president, Jefferson. Um, He had this... What I love about him is this this I am not quitting. I am not quitting. I'm just going to keep doing this. And so, you know, anybody who's trying to get something done that's kind of hard has to have that that persistence and you follow every lead and some of them pan out.
2: Well, and what ends up happening here, which is the case with so many people trying to start something on their own, is that he ended up funding the thing on his own. In 1801, he just says, fine, OK, I've had it. <laughs> I'm going to open this. I'm going to start this.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's the case with so many so many pioneers. You just you you try to explain to people what you're doing and they're like, no, don't understand. Don't see the point. For Huszak, it was, you know, people would say New York State and even Manhattan It's covered with plants. Why do we need to fence in a plot of land and -hmm. look at plants inside that plot of land when we can just pick weeds along Broadway? Why in the world (laughs) would we do this? This is a terrible use of state money. And he just couldn't explain to people what a research botanical garden was. Sometimes
2: you see politicians (laughs) oversimplify things to make a point that's really maddening, you know? And it pits people against each other.
3: People made fun of us. They said, um, this, this is... Dr. Huszak's country seat, this is Dr. Huszak's cow pasture, um, you know, and there there was a very real concern about um, the need for military expenditure in the run-up to the what became the War of 1812, and people said, we need to fortify Manhattan because the British are going to attack. Mm-hmm. But to Huszak, it was a matter of life and death as well. It, you know, yes, military fortifications, but— Botany was going to be not only the source of new medicines, but also new crops, new building materials, new commercial materials.
2: So not just medicine, but it's also about the agricultural business, also about like growing new kinds of cotton or importing new kinds of crops.
3: Yes, and he was trying to, and this is a project very dear to Jefferson's heart, which is why Hussig appealed to Jefferson initially unsuccessfully, later very successfully. For, for support, um, Hussig was really interested in trying to increase the self-sufficiency of the United States. Um, particularly when it came to medicine, there were many tropical plants that he wanted to try to grow in uh, the giant conservatory he built at his botanical garden. Uh, he also wanted to find, through chemical experimentation, he wanted to try to find native analogs to hard to import uh, exotic plants that had medicinal values. So this was really, to him, this was as life and death as um, military fortifications would have been.
2: And so he takes that step to build this botanical garden on his own in 1801, and he heads far north out of town. And w- where did he go?
3: He shopped around Manhattan for, um, for some good land, for a garden, and he... Ended up going three and a half miles north of New York City up the middle road, this country lane that ran up the spine of the island, and he found 20 acres there um, owned by the Corporation of the City of New York. And it was beautiful land. It had a, a hill in one corner from which he could see the palisades, you know, he could see across the huts. He could see to Long Island and the green fields and the tiny village of Brooklyn and way down the island he could see the spires of, of New York City. And it was covered with mountain laurel and viburnum and violets and grand old forest trees.
2: Sounds like paradise.
3: Yeah, it was.
2: He finds this piece of land, he buys it from the city for... Four thousand eight hundred dollars, twenty acres. How would he even get all the way up there to visit? I mean, you say he you could take the middle road.
3: Yeah, he'd ride a horse or his his small carriage up there.
2: Right. And was there a place to like tie the horse up out there? I mean, yeah. it didn't even have any walls or anything.
3: No, he it. had to build the the whole thing. He he hired laborers who blew up the Manhattan schist and and he brought in cartloads of manure to fertilize the ground so that he could start laying out these beds of medicinal plants. And he ended up growing fields of grain. He had barley and sunflowers, and he was growing cotton on Manhattan Island successfully for several years in a row. By the time he was done putting his garden together, and it took him a decade of work on his own, he had around 3,000 species of all kinds.
2: And these were growing in in both fields and also in a greenhouse, a large greenhouse and a hothouse yes. that he built for the garden.
3: He, After he got the beds laid out um, and the fields and his orchard planted and his kitchen garden, for a while he thought he was going to try to— um, to fund the garden by selling vegetables, but um you know a botanical garden is a really, really expensive operation
2: um, well, it's kind of ahead of its time, though I mean that's very you know like locavore yeah,
3: I think of him as the original urban gardener, really, because yeah. he was experimenting with fruits and vegetables by day, and then he'd mingle with his cosmopolitan friends at night in these fabulous parties you know um, yeah. but this conservatory. There was almost nothing like it in the United States at the time. And you have to imagine New Yorkers coming up this dusty country lane and suddenly seeing on the hill in the middle of what still looks basically like a farm, a 200 foot glass house, glass and stucco, white building, 20 feet tall, 200 feet long two hothouses flanking a taller central greenhouse.
2: And the hothouses were necessary because of New York's climate. He was trying to grow things that were not native to the area.
3: Yeah, so when once he got these hothouses and, and the greenhouse filled, but particularly hothouses, people would come visit him. It was kind of became a stop for visiting uh, dignitaries and tourists, and, and New Yorkers would bring picnics up so DeWitt Clinton picnicked there and he you know wrote in his diary <laughs> picnicked at Elgin, the Botanic Garden. Um, uh, even Hamilton you said. Hamilton would, would, would stop there. there. Yep. Hamilton would stop there on his way uh, from the his townhouse in Lower Manhattan on his way up to the Grange, which he was laying out in the first years in the 19th century, right after Husick had begun the Elgin Botanic Garden. And hussock, um Hamilton would stop there for plant cuttings and horticultural advice.
2: What I also love, though, is that these notable figures in American history and many others who I hadn't heard of were also exchanging seeds and plant specimens with Husick. So there's this whole, like, th- this whole exchange happening, a whole seed exchange happening.
3: Yeah, he wrote to everyone he could think of and one reason American Eden took me so long to research and I had to go to so many archives I mean I went to about 30 archives in the U.S. and Europe and one reason is that his papers were scattered everywhere because he was writing to people all over the world Um, he had incredible contacts among European botanists because of his time in Britain studying with Sir Joseph Banks who had you know the equivalent of, you know, the most incredible um, scientific Rolodex you could possibly hope for. And so Banks was putting him in touch with people who are in, you know, botanic gardens in India or people who had brought plants back from as far away as Japan. Hazek wrote to people all over the United States as well who had traveled or who had, you know, mercantile connections to to other from Hussig's point of view, other climates. He wanted Mm -hmm. plants from every climate he could get. Um, And eventually, because of this seed exchange and uh, specimen exchange, he was growing plants in his hothouse and greenhouse, the likes of which New Yorkers had never laid eyes on. So he had coffee trees and kumquats and um, figs and oranges and lemons and... It's hard for us to grasp what it was like. People said they would walk into this greenhouse and there just be a swirl of color and aroma. You know, it was technicolor for them. They'd never smelled or seen these things. And And he he did become begin to become famous uh, for this. Jefferson once sent Huzzick a packet of seeds that he had received from Paris, and he wrote this wonderful cover letter to Huzzick saying. I, I did not even try to open these. I just, I knew they should go to you. And I knew if I opened them, you know, basically they'd spill everywhere and I'd never get them repacked. So I don't know what their state they're in, but I'm just forwarding them straight up to you.
2: And I'm sorry, Jefferson is the president at the time?
3: This was after he was president.
2: Oh, this, again, it underscores how all of these people we know from American history, um, we're, we're seeing these people we know from American history in this new light, this new world of botany. Which brings us to his relationship again with Alexander Hamilton and with Aaron Burr, and the fact that he's still a physician. This whole time from 1801, when he really opens up this garden, he's also still seeing patients, among them Hamilton and Burr. And that brings us to July of 1804, and a duel between these two patients, which would of course be a defining moment in American history. We'll get to that famous duel and Hussick's surprising and important role in it after
4: this. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly.
2: on Wondry Plus.
0: Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable.
2: So, Victoria, could you take us to July of 1804 and to the fateful day of the duel? Tell us the story from from Hussock's point of view.
3: When Burr and Hamilton became embroiled in this written war of words that culminated in Burr's challenging Hamilton to a duel, Hussick was, as you said, Hussick was treating both men and their families, and Burr's family was him and Theodosia, his daughter. He was a widower. And Hazek was a physician to the Hamilton family. He had saved the life of Philip Hamilton some years earlier, uh, 1797. And that was, in fact, one of the reasons Hazak had moved forward on the botanical garden because he saved him using a botanical remedy. Mm. Now, when Burr and Hamilton were negotiating the conditions of the duel itself, um, they had to agree on the attending physician. And there was just no question— that it would be David Huzik, because he was the family physician to both the Burrs and the Hamiltons. Huzik was closer personally to Alexander Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And it's for that reason that Husick rode through the streets before dawn on July 11th in a carriage with Nathaniel Pendleton, um, Hamilton's second for the duel, um, a lawyer and a dear friend of Hamilton's. And they... Went and met Hamilton, and they all got into a boat at the edge of the Hudson, and they rowed across to a beach below the town of Weehawken. The dueling ground, as many people know, was um, on a ledge, sort of partway up the cliffs of the Palisades um, below the town of Weehawken. And Hazzik was in a very delicate position because they left him on the beach below the dueling ground so that he wouldn't be an eyewitness in the case of legal proceedings. Because
2: we- dueling is illegal.
3: It was illegal, yes. And it was it was prosecuted in New Jersey. It was prosecuted less stringently in New Jersey, which is why people fought in New Jersey. Huzik was standing on that beach on this spectacular summer morning, listening for the sound of pistol fire, not knowing which of his mm-hmm. friends he would be called to find wounded or dead. And... I tell the story of what he saw and experienced that day uh, in the book. Uh, As everyone knows, Hamilton died. He died the next day. And Huzzick was helpless to save him because the Burr's bullet had lodged in Hamilton's spine.
2: It was surprising to me. I'm familiar, of course, with the story, but never really, I've never read it from a medical perspective, you know. the steps that Huzik took to sort of diagnose what was really going on with him, and actually the autopsy that resulted from it, that he had to perform on his friend.
3: That was astonishing to me when Huzik Huzik was asked by Hamilton's friends to perform an autopsy for the purposes of the coroner's inquest. And I find it extraordinary, the idea that you would be, you know, have the— the metal to the, the nerves and the and the strength to cut into your friend's body and how it could feel you know it could feel a mass of clotted blood in in Hamilton's stomach and then the spikes of shattered bone of Hamilton's spine under his fingers and it had conducted many autopsies. He later would conduct an autopsy on his own infant son, and I, I just when I read these remembrances, these accounts from Hasik during the course of my research, those those brought me to tears to realize the strength of this man and the tragedy that he that he lived through and that he he had to bear witness to medically,
2: mm-hmm. and in the case of Hamilton, the prominence that. Hazak had too in the funeral, in the procession, you know, in yeah. in all of the the ways that the city and the nation mourned yeah. in the following days, and uh, and Huzek was right there with the family.
3: Yeah, yeah, and he was there. He was a a key player in trying to get the the so- story. Kind of not straight, but to get the two sides of the story—the the Burr side of the story from Burr's second, and the, the Hamilton side of the story of what happened at the duel—and we still don't really know what happened mm-hmm. on the dueling ground. They were very conflicting stories from the two sides. And Huzick, you know, after Hamilton's funeral, Van Ness, who was Burr's second, and Pendleton, who was Hamilton's second, they went to Huzick's living room and sat down and started you know, figuring out how are they gonna report what happened to the nation.
2: That's extraordinary. They just
3: pulled up chairs at Hussack's house, you know, which was around the corner from on it was on Broadway, um, around the corner from where Hamilton had just been buried in the at the edge of Trinity churchyard. He was present for so many events in American history that unfolded in New York City.
2: Sometimes in his home
3: <laughs> in his in his living room, yeah.
2: And so this is happening, this is eighteen oh four. But by this point, back uptown, well, it's not even uptown, out of town, miles out of town, he's still completely occupied with growing his, his botanic garden, which he has named the Elgin. We shouldn't jump over that detail. Mm-hmm. Um, why does he name it the Elgin Botanic Garden?
3: His father had emigrated from a town on the northern coast of Scotland called Elgin, mm-hmm. and uh, Huzzick made a pilgrimage to Elgin while he was studying at Edinburgh. So in the spring of 1793, he went to see this town that his father had come from. And I I made that pilgrimage in his footsteps, although I did it driving, you know, on the <laughs> wrong side of the road in the driving rain by myself, six hours, avoiding sheep and stone walls. And when I got there, I realized why he had named it Elgin. It was the most stunning landscape, and it had a personal meaning to him.
2: Throughout everything that's being planted and the success, really, that he's having with growing these spectacular new plants and these new species, he's still fighting for funding for this place. We don't have time to get into all of those details, but let's just say that by 1811, it's not Columbia anymore. By 1811, it's the state of New York that is pledging to pay him for his garden.
3: Yes, and some people, when I'm giving talks about Hussick, they say, oh, he he had to give up his garden to the state. No, his whole goal, the entire decade he was working on it, was to create a public botanical garden. That's what he was trying to found. And he had to do- The first
2: in the United States. Yes,
3: the very first in the United States. And what he had to do to make that happen was show people what he was trying to do. And so he did it privately first. And in 1811, he was on top of the world. The state of New York bought the garden from him or pledged to buy the garden, it took a while, as these things do, but they passed an act. And he really, it was the culmination of his dreams to have created this public institution. And they renamed it the State Botanic Garden.
2: Which seems like the solution that he was after, but he hadn't, as you point out, really thought through what happens next. He, I guess he had assumed that it would also mean that the state would run it.
3: Yeah. And the state (laughs) <laughs> the state really quickly realized that it didn't know anything about botany. It didn't have the funds or the kind of will to allocate the funds to run this, you know, on an ongoing basis. Um, and so they gave the garden to first to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which was an independent medical school that Husick was involved in. And then Columbia came. That was 1811. Columbia came asking for a loan Came to the state. Came to the state asking for a loan. And they said, we don't have any money, but um, we'll give you the Botanic Garden. You can run the Botanic Garden. And Columbia was really upset. The trustees were, you know, they're writing letters saying, this is an albatross. We do not want this. And it took a while for Columbia to realize that it actually was not an albatross. Meanwhile, Huzik begins to see the garden he has painstakingly created, he sees the pains start to fall out in his hothouse and shatter on the floor, and the weeds are growing up in the flower beds. And he had an incredible arboretum he had grown. of. So that's a tree collection mm-hmm. that was ripped out and taken up to beautify the grounds of the new mental hospital up the island, the Bloomingdale Asylum. Mm-hmm.
2: So this is a travesty. Yeah. And he can't really do anything about that. And meanwhile, the city and the state, the federal government, by 1812, they've got other things on their minds. There have been these simmering war tensions uh, with Great Britain. And to, you know, make a big stink about the fact that there's this botanical garden that needs more funding seemed yeah. really sort of... He, he realized that he couldn't really make that argument.
3: Right. He he couldn't get any traction with that. And... Um despite the kind of life or death, it, it's, it's that medical research, you know, so much of it is dead ends. And if the British are really on the verge of potentially burning New York down, uh, which people really believed was imminent, then, you know, the fact that you might someday discover a new medicine with, you know, a couple more decades of funding, it just, it doesn't hold water.
2: And by 1812, it isn't just war that they're concerned about but a city that is being transformed before its citizens' eyes. And you write about a team of men that visit the Botanic Garden in 1812, and they bring along some marble slabs. What are those
3: slabs? Those slabs were markers that they erected at regular intervals up the edge of Hussock's Land, up the middle road. And those slabs were marking where the streets were going to be opened. And the streets were numbered 47, 48, 49, 50, 51. And the middle road was to be renamed Fifth Avenue. So Huzik's land was sitting at the heart of what would become Midtown Manhattan.
2: It's just like a mic drop moment, isn't it? <laughs> but by 1812 or so, the garden is out of his hands. And he does continue to busy himself. I mean, obviously, he's he's teaching and he's practicing.
3: And we should add that he was busy founding about or co-founding about a dozen other New York City institutions.
2: <laughs> Which brings us back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, the fact that he and his his m- many of his friends like Dwight Clinton were these sort of like organizational leaders of mm. things like the New York Historical Society and mm. also the New York Horticultural Society mm-hmm. among many others. Yeah. Where did he find the time?
3: I don't know. I, I it was exhausting studying the man. He was, I just I mean to be a founder or co-founder of over a dozen institutions to teach found, co-founded two other medical schools while during his medical career he Volunteered at the almshouse, seeing patients. He he found an obstetrics hospital because he was so worried about the poor women dying in childbirth. He he was a father. He was a a a father of so many children, and he lost three infants and then to illness, and then he lost two wives. Kitty he lost very early, and he remarried and had a long happy marriage. And then she Mary Mary Hesek, yeah. Then she died, and. Then he remarried a very wealthy woman who happened to be the widow of one of his creditors on the Botanical Garden, and they had a great marriage and um, both and had seven children.
2: It's like it's like the Brady Bunch exactly. back and in they, the day. Yeah. But so that's Magdalena Coster. Yes. And that marriage takes place in 1824. Mm-hmm. They move into her fabulous house on Chambers Street. I guess it had <laughs> enough rooms for all those kids. Yeah. And they would have these amazing society parties
3: incredible party and people went home and wrote in their diaries about what the rooms looked like who was there I mean it was all the artists and writers and and then we'd be visiting dukes and
2: <laughs> amazing and that third marriage for him happens in 1824 a year before the big event the 1825 opening official opening and completion of the Erie Canal over which his Lifelong friend, DeWitt Clinton presides, yeah. um, because it had been his project for more than a decade. I mean, he yeah. had been the brainchild of this, and during that period, he had had all kinds of elected offices too. He had <laughs> he had been the, all at once the, the, the governor, the mayor. <laughs> Which kind of takes us, though, the Erie Canal sort of takes us out of this era, right, into this new... It's like the changing of the guard Mm -hmm. and the start of this this next chapter in New York's history. Mm -hmm. The boom time. Yeah. That, among other things, would have real implications on the property value of his former land. Yes. And it's a bit poignant at the end because all of these characters seem to start passing. You know, the, the ones we've spent... 300 pages with. Within a short number of years, you have, well, you have DeWitt Clinton, who died uh, in February of 1828. In fact, Thomas Jefferson and Adams both die, John Adams died on the same day, Mm -hmm. July 4th, 1826. Mm -hmm. And interesting that sort of this final chapter for him would play out not in New York, but far upstate in Hyde Park, Mm -hmm. on the estate that he and his new wife purchased that had belonged to his former mentor, Mr. Bard.
3: Yeah, it was Samuel Bard's estate. It was next door to the Roosevelt estate, and Husick had taught some of the Roosevelt kids, um, including one who went on, you know, much later, would be Franklin Delano Roosevelt's grandfather. And so it was next door to the Roosevelt estate, and there was um, just a stunning piece of property, which you can still visit today, and it looks very much like it did when Huzik was presiding over it. His mansion is gone. Mm-hmm. He he took the Bard Mansion and enlarged it. Um, he had an amazing collection of uh, Hudson River School art. Right, yeah. And he had a library of thousands of books. And, and his mansion burned down in the 1840s after his death, and the uh, Vanderbilt family built a huge... Gilded Age mansion on the footprint of it. So it looks really different, the house. But the landscape is what Huzik was looking at when he sat on his back piazza overlooking the Hudson because the the view shed has also been preserved.
2: And so he kind of took this passion that he had for botany and landscape design. Yeah. And he poured it into this new property.
3: Where nobody could tell him what to do. He had enormous amounts of money now. Um, Magdalena was very—his wife was very into the estate and the project and very supportive. And he recreated the Elgin Botanic Garden on kind of a massive scale because now in New York he had, had 20 acres, and now he has uh, over 500 acres wow. to play with. Yeah,
2: um, incredible. Yeah. There's so much more to talk about. We have to, unfortunately, wrap this up, including the fact that one of her children, one of her daughters, would marry a skirmerhorn in December of 1835, and Huzik and Magdalena would host a dinner to introduce the new couple on December 16th, 1835, the very day of the Great Fire of 1835.
3: The night of that fire, he went racing out with a lot of other people to try to help, and as a doctor, he was... um, particularly uh, urgently needed. He had predicted that he was going to have a stroke. He told one of his sons, I'm going to have a stroke soon. He could just tell, and he was practicing writing with his left hand because he thought that he would be paralyzed on his right side. And he wow. So he, he was diagnosing That's not himself.
2: a conversation you want to have
3: with him. <laughs> no, parents. his son was very uh, disconcerted. Um, but he had this stroke after exerting himself in this fire. He had suffered a lot of uh, f- financial loss because he had invested... Some of his um, money with Magdalena, he had invested a lot of it in insurance companies, mm-hmm. and they were suddenly hit with all these claims. And he, this kind of combination of stress and shock and exhaustion, triggered this stroke. And he fell into a coma. And he was, by this point, although mostly people haven't heard his name today, uh, but by this point, he was so famous that newspapers from New Hampshire to South Carolina ran bulletins about his illness, saying, Dr. Huzik has been felled by a stroke. We pray for his recovery. Mm. Um, He didn't recover. And when he died, there were homages in the newspaper saying he touched thousands of lives, and it's an enormous loss. Now we don't know his name. Um, And his pioneering achievement is buried under one of our most iconic urban spaces.
2: Which I guess takes us to sort of the postscript and how we wound up with that structure on top of it today. When we left Elgin, you mentioned the streets are laid out through the property. Uh, They had been staked out in 1812, but they were actually laid out in the 1840s. And you write that St. Patrick's actually chooses, um, because it was so um, rural up there, that St. Patrick's Cathedral actually chose the spot across the street, across Fifth Avenue, because it would be facing that field.
3: Those old bucolic grounds of of the Elgin Botanic Garden. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's crazy. And then in the 1850s, in 1857, Columbia would move to a new campus, a new building that was at Madison and 49th, so Mm -hmm. just a block away from this property Mm -hmm. that they owned. Mm -hmm. Um, And and meanwhile, Columbia was dividing up those lots. Um, By 1870, you write that they had divided those up into 200 different lots that were then developed And the money from those leases they would use to actually buy up that other medical school that you had mentioned, the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Mm
3: -hmm. And they also, eventually, that money helped Columbia expand into the great university that it became by the late 19th century. Uh, And it helped them build their stunning McKim, Mead, and White campus on...
2: The Bloomingdale Insane Asylum.
3: Bloomingdale Insane Asylum, which had some of Hussick's Elgin trees on the property, and the last ones didn't die until the 19-teens.
2: Wow. But Columbia would still hold on to those leases. It would still hold on to that property in Midtown. In the 1920s, they would sign a long-term lease with John D. Rockefeller Jr., uh, who was looking for space. Because he had been working with the Metropolitan Opera, which was looking for new space for its opera house, 39th and Broadway, and was just that old opera house has fallen apart. But of course, that opera house was never built here because of the stock market crash.
3: Yes, and John D. Rockefeller Jr. decided to go ahead with this giant complex of commercial and, and cultural buildings, and Columbia leased eleven acres of its land to John D. Rockefeller Jr. Um, and they did not sell the land to the Rockefellers until 1985.
2: And the Rockefeller business and their associates would hold on to that for another 15 years and then turn around and sell that, which they had paid $400 million for. They would turn around and sell it for $2 billion.
3: Mm. Almost $2 billion. yeah. So Huzik's property became kind of the opposite of a botanical garden in a way, except— for the Channel Gardens, Mm -hmm. which is a a beautiful sort of long garden that stretches from the old middle road, as I like to call it, (laughs) from Fifth Avenue to...
2: (laughs) We need to keep calling Fifth (laughs) Avenue the the middle middle road. road.
3: (laughs) Um, From Fifth Avenue to the old RCA building, now 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Fantastically, Rockefeller Center has recently taken renewed interest in its legacy as a botanical garden. And they have begun replanting the channel gardens, working with a, a wonderful landscape architecture firm in Brooklyn called Future Green, mm-hmm. to take what has been for a long time a very stunning ornamental garden and make it more like the ecosystem it was when Husick began building his botanic garden, over 200 years ago. So I was in Rockefeller Center. Well, I went and sat in Rockefeller Center by uh, a plaque that's there um, in honor of David Husick And I was just sitting there watching, watching people enjoy this space. And I do like to go there and kind of close my eyes and imagine it as that botanic garden. And I didn't have to close my eyes this time because I was looking at wildflowers covered with honeybees who are having the time of their lives. And I've never seen that in Rockefeller Center. And no, Huzik would love it. The amazing thing to me about that land now is that the conservatory that Huzik built that was 200 feet long, that was so extraordinary, is now under the footprint of Radio City Music Hall. And I... You know, it's almost the whole reason I wrote the book was that I read a page about this man. Ten years ago, I read that Rockefeller Center used to be the first public botanical garden in the United States when this land was pastoral, and Radio City Music Hall sits on the footprint of his conservatory. And for me, as someone who loves New York and loves the natural environment and the built environment, I was enchanted by this juxtaposition and deeply confused. And that sent me on a decade-long journey that has been the most fun I've ever had in my life.
2: And we're all better because of that journey, Um, because of the book that you have given to us. So today we can visit that plaque that I I went to at the beginning of the show. Sorry, you you weren't there for it. You can find it, as you say, uh, just right off of the middle road.
3: Yeah, turn your back to the old middle road.
2: Yeah, and there it is. The name is coming back in certain places.
3: There's a wonderful tribute to Huzzick that is, is quite unexpected and delightful. On Huzzick's former property, right off the edge of Rockefeller Center, but but still on his the land that he owned, on what is now 48th Street, There is a restaurant opening called The Elgin, and it's opening on August 26, five days before Huzik's 250th birthday. Mm. I mean, the interior is all a tribute to Huzik and his circle, his world, and his project, this great botanical garden. So you will find portraits of Huzik, Hamilton, Burr, but also his best friend, DeWitt Clinton, who doesn't get enough love, in my opinion, Mm -mm. and there's a plaque in the sidewalk in front of the restaurant that picks up the language of the plaque that's in Rockefeller Center. And when I've waited outside the the restaurant, I see tourists stop and read this plaque beneath their feet and kind of look up and start to wonder, who is this man who is worthy of a plaque, but we haven't heard of him? And the other thing I love about this space is that uh, a botanist, a wonderful botanist, who's a, a specialist in the flora of New York City. His name is Daniel Atha at the New York Botanical Garden. He has pressed specimens that represent plants that Huzik was growing on that property, and it's formed a kind of herbarium along the walls of the restaurant. Oh, cool. So this is a way to revisit, to revive the, the visual world that occupied that land and and that visual world is lost to us and when we lose the visuals you know new generations come along and they lose the story and I love that you know just before Huzik's 250th birthday his story is is coming back to us
2: yeah and we should mention of course that New York you know another place to sort of feel his legacy in a way is in the botanical garden that New York would eventually get in the late 19th century Because in 1891, the New York Botanical Garden would be established in the Bronx. And and that botanical garden, among other things, today operates an enormous plant research program, which is something that I'm sure Hazek would have been very into.
3: He would have loved it. And it was founded by uh, his sort of intellectual lineage. His students had to work without a botanical garden, but they kept the study of botany alive in New York. And eventually their students founded this magnificent botanical garden in the Bronx on 250 acres, the New York Botanical Garden. And when it was being founded, somebody said in a newspaper, there should be a statue of David Huzik there. Yes, and it, it didn't happen. But I don't think we need a statue of the man. His spirit is in every part of that garden. And I think in it imbues the botanical gardens and arboretum across the United States that were founded in the wake of the founding of the New York Botanical Garden. He trained the first generation of professional American botanists, and they've left their mark across the United States in wonderful ways across across our cities.
2: It's an inspiring story. The book is American Eden, David Huzik, Botany and Medicine in the Garden of the Early Republic by Victoria Johnson, who's been my guest today. Victoria, where else can can we find you? You're doing a lot of events around this book, and you're you're speaking at different places in the city.
3: Yeah, um, I've got two New York events coming up uh, in the wake of his two hundred fiftieth birthday. One is on September twelfth; I'll be at Francis Tavern, and on September twentieth, I'll be the keynote speaker at a an event at the New York Botanical Garden that's looking at the history of botany and uh, ecology in New York City, in this region, that's very rich botanically, even though that's not necessarily the first thing that people think of. Um, I have a website called AmericanEden.org, and that's where you can find the events I'm doing in New York City and in cities around the United States.
2: Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Bowery
3: Boys. Thank you. It was a huge pleasure. (laughs)
2: A huge thank you to all of our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Because of you, Greg and I are able to spend all of our time creating the Bowery Boys and reading fabulous books like American Eden. So thank you. You can join the fun and actually get access to our Patreon-only feed, which is the Bowery Boys Movie Club, where we talk about different movies that were set and shot in New York City and break it down scene by scene. It's a lot of fun. Join the party at patreon.com slash boweryboys. We also hope you'll join us at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater for our Halloween show this year. We have two shows on October 27th and one show on Halloween itself, October 31st, at Joe's Pub. Uh, We'll be telling some of our favorite ghost stories in Old New York. You can find tickets at publictheater.org. There's still a couple seats left. So thank you so much for joining me and Victoria today. Greg will be back with me in two weeks as we dive into a very different topic across the East River. Have a great New York week, whether you live
1: here or not. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support,